I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, the Lord our righteousness was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple rage. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, the Lord, our righteousness, seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion they ro- that rolled, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. The Lord, our righteousness, was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me with light from on high, the legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. The Lord, our righteousness, my Savior, must be. My terrors all vanish before thy sweet name. My guilt fears vanish. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. The Lord, our righteousness, is all things to me. The Lord, our righteousness, my treasure and boast. The Lord, our righteousness, I never can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my uh, breastplate and shield. Uh, And this is a wonderful segue into our uh, topic for today as we think about uh, this idea of mental conceptions. Now, looking at and picturing uh, who we are in Christ, who Christ is to us, is essential to our victory. But as we discovered last week in looking in the book of Romans uh, in chapter 2, there is a component of the individual to where we want to justify ourselves. And all the way back to Cain, and you look at him and what he did, and we'll kind of touch on that later. But why did he do it? Why, Why did he not give what God asked for him to give? He wasn't trusting in what God provided for him. He trusted in what he could do for himself. Why do individuals today want to put themselves under law? And why do individuals want to say, I can do this, I can do that, and check off one box after the other? Because it's something you can see that shows you your own ability and gives you an opportunity to glory and to boast in yourself. And so as we look out over Romans chapter 2, what we come to understand is that we are unable. If Paul didn't uh, convey anything over the course of the first three chapters of the book of Romans, he conveyed that we are unrighteous, whether you be Jew, whether you be Gentile, whoever you might be, you are unrighteous. And there is no standard of living that you're going to be able to set up for yourself is going to account for that lack of righteousness. Now, this paints a a pretty dark picture for human beings, right? But fear not. (laughs) There is someone, mighty to save, as the scriptures say, that has given us victory over our sin nature, that has accounted for righteousness where we are unrighteous, right? And God looks at him, and when we believe in him, he counts us to be righteous. There goes that word again, counts. Calls something to be so that doesn't seem to be so to us, right? What did we do, or what did we say for this word? We looked at the example of transactions that take place in your bank account. We can trust when we stick that card into the ATM machine that is going to spit out the amount of money that we requested, right? Even though we don't see all the ins and outs of the monies moving and and being dispersed, we trust that that machine is going to spit out the money that we requested. Now, what if that machine didn't spit out the money you requested? (laughs) You might be a little upset, right? (laughs) What if you went to see what balance was in your account and it said zero where you had money before? 
you might be a little upset. But we don't have to wonder and guess what's going to happen with our salvation because the one that has created everything, the one that has power and control over everything, has counted us to be righteous in Christ. And so it's, you can take that to the bank and cash it every day of the week because if God said it, it's true. And so if you take nothing else out of this series and out of this word, what God counts to be so, we can count to be so. What we imagine to be so in our minds is flimsy and fleeting. And what you see of these individuals in the book of Romans is that they were reliant upon things that were of themselves. Those people that they talk about historically in chapter one were relying upon what they could do rather than a relationship with God. You see, he says in chapter one that they had an opportunity to know him and experience him and have a relationship with him. And what did they choose? They chose to have a relationship with gods that you can't can't even talk to you, can't even have a discourse with you. They're they're made like unto men and like unto animals, the things that the creator created. And so they worship the creation more than the creator. And God gave them over to these vain imaginations. And what happened? Tons of sin. (laughs) They created rather than creating better ways to glorify God. They created better ways to perfect their sin nature. And you see the debauchery back then is nothing new because you're seeing it here today. Where people don't want to retain God in their knowledge and their understanding. They worship in the thought of what man can do. And they thought of what uh, all of these false gods can do. And really, uh, you look at the atheists and these kind of of guys. they, They act as though they don't have a God. I would submit to you that they do. Their God is is their understanding of what man can accomplish. And we can see uh, over the course of time that that's not much. And that's why our society, that's why this world is in the shape that it's in. Because they don't want to retain God in their knowledge. They don't count who God is to be true. Uh, Today we're going to look into this topic. We're going to continue on from where we were last week and we left off. Uh, with the third point and didn't really get to hit up on that hard. But uh, this idea of the conscience of man and how it interacts with this inner law of man. And so all of us have uh, hardwired into us, I believe, and scripture says it here, this understanding of certain moral laws of God. And we talked about it or touched upon it last week. I don't think there's a person on the face of the earth that can kill somebody and say, That was right. (laughs) You just walk up to someone in cold blood and shoot them down and say it's right. I'm reminded of uh, of of O.J. Simpson. And this might be a controversial (laughs) topic to bring up. But it always struck me that these people that he killed, he claims his innocence. And then if I had done it, this is how I would do it. (laughs) Right. He wrote a book talking about that it seems to me that someone's conscience is is eating at them and i submit to you you see it even with the hardest of hardest of killers that they understand the thing that they did is wrong and so this is what you see over in the uh, second chapter of romans Uh, but what you count and what you deem to be true and remember we talked about a mental conception and we started this at the conference These things that you're imagining in your mind. We have a lot of thoughts that come into our minds and that we entertain and that turn into pictures, mental pictures or mental movies that we're playing within our minds. And the the question is, do these inner movies that are in our minds become things that we deem to be true or hold on to? Are they things that we want to socialize to other people? Are they things that we count to be true to ourselves and become values that we live by? And as you look in the book of Romans, you see that law can become one of those things. And if you imagine all of these things that you can do under law, 
rather than the things that we've been provided and given by grace, you're going to see a bad result in your individual lives. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this day and grateful for uh, the grace that you've given us uh, that is not <laughs> with attachment. There's nothing that we need to do in order to be recipients of the wonderful salvations that you, salvation that you've promised us. We just need to live in who we are in Christ. And it's a simple uh, exercise of, of mental reflection. We pray that as uh, we continue on through this study that uh, your Holy Spirit would make the things jump out on the page of each individual that's hearing and reading that you desire for them to know that they might uh, get what they need and, and be able to live out lives that are glorifying and well-pleasing to you. These things we ask in the name of your son. Amen. All right, and so uh, there's a potential for individuals to account law for justification and specifically looking at Gentiles. Go back with me to Romans chapter 2. And I want to read verses 1 through 11. And the backdrop of this is uh, what we just talked about. Um, and remember back to Romans chapter 1. And real quick, I'm not going to read the whole context, but go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. And we'll read up to verse 21. He says in verse uh, 18, for the wrath, and really there, I underline that the in my Bible. I don't know about you guys what you do, but um, it's really not the wrath. If it were the wrath of God, you would see all kinds of things going on that we see that are going to happen in the book of Revelation. Right. And so that's looking at all of the wrath of God. This is a quality of the wrath of God. This is not the complete wrath of God. For the quality of the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. This is Romans chapter one and verse 18. <laughs> Sorry. I saw you out of the corner of my eye. <laughs> uh, and unrighteousness of men who hold, or really our word for hold is suppress. It's not just the idea that they don't want to know it for themselves. They hold it down and suppress it for other people to know the truth. And you see this with men all the time. It's not enough for them to believe something. They want everyone to not believe it, right? And this is that word that we could, we could see in scripture from malignantly <clears throat> evil, they're not satisfied to be evil by themselves. They want to drag everybody else down with them. And so this idea of holding or suppressing the truth by unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them or really they're among them. For God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So as you look out into creation, what we see and understand is that this creation, even in its fallen state, testifies of the truth of God. Go, go ahead and look out on some of the wondrous things of this creation. And you wonder, how did that get there? <laughs> right? You look at the Grand Canyon. And what did they say? Oh, this there were waters that came over millions of years and, and created this this giant crevice in Arizona. <laughs> Last time I checked, Arizona is a desert, right? <laughs> well, uh, we won't go into the science of everything, but these wondrous creations, parts of creation. You look even at the sky and the arrangement of the stars and understand the majesty of this creation even in its fallen state and it testifies and screams to the fact that there's a God I, I look at science sometimes and, and what some of these scientists have to say and listen to their theories and in every absence that they can explain what do I see I see that there's a God <laughs> They say, oh, these are just anomalies or things we, we can't explain. But this creation testifies, it screams to the fact that there's a God. And so we see and understand that. And so his divine nature can be seen throughout creation. In verse 21, because that 
when they knew God, this word for know is not just the uh, idea of, of knowing someone's name. There are a lot of people that I see out on the streets or, or see at my job or see in different places. I know who they are. I know what their name is, but I'm not necessarily familiar with their activity. Right. We have the opportunity to come together at church once a week, twice a week, however many times we're together and we talk to one another. And so we have a relationship with one another. We more than just know each other's names, right? We know a little bit about one another. And this is what this word is here. It, it's an experiential knowledge. When they had this experiential knowledge of God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain or empty in their imaginations. And there's that word that we looked at in, in the conference, dialegeo. And it has the idea of those thoughts that are going through their minds, right? These conceptions that were in their head, these movies that they were playing out on the basis of thoughts that were entering their heads. And what were these thoughts? They were empty. They were unredeeming, un, uh, un let's say. There was nothing to these thoughts that provided anything good for their lives, they became vain in their imaginations and foolish and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, we understand that this is a world of darkness now, right? This is Satan's world system and it's dark. And you can see it often with the activities of the individuals that are in this world. They don't have the light of God. And you can only have God's light by having a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And he provides that light. What does it say in scripture? We, we stand out as luminaries in this world of darkness. They didn't have that. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise. I know I said I was going to stop at 21. I lied. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so what did they do? <laughs> Rather than having this personal experience and personal relationship with the God of the universe that created all things, they desired rather to create these things themselves that they called gods. And we think, oh, that's, that's nothing that you see now. That's nothing that's going on in this day and time. Really? What do, you, what do people put in place of the God that created the universe? I would submit to you all kinds of things. What are people placing their value in today? There's men that they put up on, on pedestals and glorify. You don't have to have these uh, bulls and goats that they, they formed and fashioned in these old days to be worshiping something else other than the true and living God. You have men that are putting their devotion and all of their time and effort into things in this world that are not the one that created this world. And this is what was happening then. And so he gave them up to their imaginations and they, they thought of more and more ways to be evil. And you see, one of the things that came out of this was homosexuality. But as you scroll down to verse 29, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, malignity, <laughs> whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despite, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection. That's a, a big one there that you see today. What could cause someone to kill one of their own children? I imagine or, or remember back to this woman in, in Titusville or in uh, Port St. John, actually. Miss J remembers this, I'm sure. Uh, she had about five or six children. And one day she just decided she had enough. <laughs> and she shot each one of those children. And these children were running out of the house, running to the next door neighbor, trying to get help. And she one by one systematically killed each one of her children. What causes someone to do that, especially a mother? 
no natural affection. There should be something within each one. The, the animals have this, right? A preservation for their own children. And this is something that can break down when we're that far separated from God. And you see this here. Uh, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So what, what makes someone understand that they committing evil things makes them worthy of death? I think as you get to verse 11 of chapter 2, uh, and you see this, uh, or, or excuse me, verse 15, you see this natural law that's in the individuals and in understanding uh, that certain things are wrong. They have this natural understanding, and it tells them and testifies, oops, excuse me, to that. Uh, but as we look at this a little bit further, we see the nat uh, nature of man in self-justification. And so we get into chapter two of Romans and I just closed myself off to it by accident. Uh, but in verses one through eleven, he says, therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges for where wherein thou judges another, thou condemnest thyself for the, thou that judges doest the same things. And what you're going to see through the first part of chapter two is that there is hypocrisy that happens with men that are trying to legally do things on their own and then <laughs> they're puff puffing their chest out. <laughs> they're saying, look at, look at what a good boy I am. And look at these people over here, <laughs> the things that they do. I'm not pointing out to you guys at all. <laughs> but they, they point the finger at other people. They compare themselves alongside of other people. And the truth is, they do the very same things themselves. And they're judging uh, based on this. In verse 2, it says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of, of his goodness, or really they're the word for kindness, and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. Uh, it's not anything that we've done that has ingratiated us to God or that causes us to be uh, saved. And it's really not God saying that the wrath is hanging over your head, <laughs> right? Remember, uh, I learned about him in, in grade school, Jonathan Edwards, and sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? And he preached this message that was so hellfire and brimstone written that he had the people quaking in their, their boots. They thought that they were going to fall out of the very pews and fall right into hell. And it's not that that brings people to repentance. As you see out in, in Revelation and God is causing all of these things that are truly coming from his wrath to happen. What's going to be the response of the people? It says they're going to shake their fists at God and they're going to curse him. It's not the, the wrath of God. It's his kindness that brings us to repentance. Verse five. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasure us up unto thyself wrath against that, the day of wrath uh, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by uh, patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul that doeth evil to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But glory, honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. And so in these first 11 verses, we see uh, that this judgment of men and where man judges, it's in accordance with hypocrisy. There is no man that's going to be able to stand up and say that he is righteous and completely righteous apart from God. Who do you see? 
point out one person and I bet if we go and look into their background, you're going to find some unrighteousness with that individual. There's no man that could be stood up above God. Potentially condemns the judger. And so when you're judging according to your own righteousness, you're condemning yourself. Why? Because you're not righteous. You have no right to judge anyone on the basis of your own actions. Potentially subjects the judger to the judgment of God. If you're not saved by the grace that God provides and had the righteousness of Christ imparted to you, guess what? <laughs> you can judge other people all you want. You're standing in the line of judgment yourself. And so this is what we see here. Uh, we see that the judgment of God is, is different. It's according to his attribute of truth. And it's according to his attribute of righteousness. Remember the, the uh, characteristics of God that we looked at and we had our acronym for remembering it. Anyone want to uh, shout out the acronym? Scott got it. All right. And so as you think of all right, uh, I won't test anybody to see if they remember each one of the parts of all right. But two of those parts of all right, the R and the T, are righteousness and truth. God can judge because his judgment is according to truth. He's never going to give any judgment that's not in line with that characteristic. And his judgment is in complete line with his righteousness. We see uh, in courts and everything as we look out that judgments are supposed to vindicate individuals who are incorrectly uh, judged, right? You've heard that word vindicate before. It comes right from the word for righteousness. And so God uh, can judge according uh, to this righteousness. And we see according to his judgment, uh, uh, he appropriates certain things uh, with an understanding of the individual's deeds and without regard for the individual's status. And so God judges everything in accordance with what people have done. You even see that at the great white throne judgment. He's not going to judge the man that's killed over a million people the same way that he judges someone that's just unsaved and just didn't live a life that was uh, glorifying and well-pleasing to him. Uh, and we see this now in verses 12 through 14. We see the nature of man is incapable due to non-qualification. In verse 12, it says, for as many as have sinned, Without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. What is he saying here? We see that the judgment, there is a judgment that pertains to law in verses 12 through 13. Uh, and there's one for those that are under law and for those that are not <laughs> under law. Uh, now, go with me over to. Um, no, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong citation. There. Uh, we see that the Jews are, are were justified in their present tense salvation by adhering to law. Now, when the law was the standard of living for the Jews, what were they supposed to live by? They were saved in individual and different ways, but they lived by what? I thought someone was going to say grace, but Scott, Scott said it. Yes, they lived by the law. And so they lived out and, and they gave their sacrifices when they sinned. It doesn't mean that they lived perfect. But what does it say? When they did sin, they brought forth the sacrifice that they were supposed to bring forth. Those that were doing right under law, some some didn't do that. Uh, but there were certain things that they were prescribed to do. Uh, the Jews in the dispensation of grace are not under law. And if we went through uh, to chapter nine, uh, you kind of see some evidence to that. But I don't want to linger in this area uh, too long. In verse 14, we see the practicing of the law uh, by the Gentiles. Uh, we understand and know that Gentiles are not under law. 
They're not under the Mosaic law. And when we think of the Mosaic law, we think of it in several parts. You have the ceremonial things that they were supposed to accomplish. And people will say, oh, obviously Gentiles are not under that law, right? You didn't see Gentiles going to the temple and practicing and doing all the things that they were supposed to do with regard to that. But what people will say is they're under the moral law. They're under the Ten Commandments. What this verse says is that there is a moral law that's written in the hearts of individuals. And it's not for you to adhere to. It's to show that certain things are wrong to do. It's not right to go out and steal something from someone. You should know that that's not right. And I, again, I don't know that you have people that even do that to think it's right. They just see it as, as something that they need to do for themselves. You don't have people that go out and just kill people and say, boy, I'm perfectly <laughs> fine and just shooting that person down. They might justify it in their mind and their conscience at whatever varying degree might excuse it. But as you see with a lot of people, when they have time to sit there and think about it, their mind might might change a little bit. Right. Or they have have some sympathy concerning what they did. You, you're perfectly fine with doing something. You never have any regrets concerning it. Uh, and we see that here. Read uh, with me in verse 14. He says, for when the Gentiles, which have not law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, their thoughts uh the mean uh, while accusing or else excusing one another. And so in verse 15, we see the desire to perform law uh, and a graphic demonstration of the fact that the law is written in the hearts of individuals. Uh, this word for uh, graphic demonstration, this uh, word we see for show in verse 15, has the idea of a visual demonstration of something played out. Now, I haven't gone to see as many movies as I used to go see since all of this stuff has started up. But when when I used to like to go see movies every once in a while. Right. And you could see a preview of a movie on your screen and get a little bit of an indication of what that movie is about. I saw these previews for this movie old and it looked very interesting to me how these people are out on this island and they turn old over the course of like 20 minutes or so. And, and they end up dying and they're wondering, how are these, pe 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 these people turning old so fast? And so it interests me. I probably will go and see this movie at some point. And I will have the full demonstration of what that movie is about, right? It's more of a graphic understanding of what that director was trying to say. And that's what this word has the idea of here uh, that we see in verse 15 to show. It shows, it gives a graphic demonstration that the moral law of individuals is, is written in your heart. And then your conscience, as you have participation with that. And so if you grew up in a certain household, you might not have been able to do this, 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 and this. But this person over here grew up in a different household and they are able to do this, 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 and this. And so there's going to be varying levels of how you respond and react to those individual things that are in your heart based on your conscience. Right. And we understand as believers, that's that's not a safe thing to live by. But we see the utilization or the law utilized within uh, individuals for specific persons or for, for specific purpose of demonstration of a point. Uh, go with me over to Romans chapter nine and verse 17. Romans chapter 9 and verse 17. Boy, that clock, sometimes it, uh, <laughs> it moves a little faster than it seems like it does when you're out there. <laughs> Is this the right verse? In verse uh, 17, and, and in the context here, uh, Paul is uh, explaining, um, I'm trying to 
He's explaining the uh, difference between election of individuals and selection of individuals. But in verse 17, he says, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, have I raised up or raised thee up that I might show. OK, spinning off of this word for show and the graphic demonstration, my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, uh, have I uh, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and upon whom he will harden. He hardens. And so uh, just a bit of a, a, a further explanation of that word for showing. We see uh, what did God do with Pharaoh? It says after every one of those plagues that he did to Pharaoh, what did he do to him? He caused his heart to be hardened. Right. And if God hadn't done that, maybe Pharaoh would have relented and said, OK, I'm, I'm done. But every one of these plagues he used for a specific purpose to show his power. And so he caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. And he went through 10 different plagues on this nation to show his power. And someone has said, I've never studied it uh, deeply myself enough. But maybe Dan knows that a lot of these plagues that he sent were against individual gods that these Egyptians were holding up. And so they, you want to worship flies? You want to worship frogs? Here you go. Have them all you want. And I'm more powerful than these guys that you're serving. Because I sent them unto you. And let's see your God do something to remove them out of your country or out of your land. A graphic demonstration. Uh, we see that the hearts, uh, the heart back in Romans chapter two and verse 15, uh, the mind, the will and emotions have a natural desire to function in accordance with the law. And so as you're living and, and functioning in your flesh, what do we see? That flesh wants to justify itself, right? It wants to come up with some standards and say, I can do this. What did the Israelites say when God said, uh, if you will just listen to what I've told you and follow, you've seen what I did in, Israel, in, in Egypt and how I brought you out. All I want you to do is follow me the rest of the way and have faith in what I can accomplish. And what did they say? <laughs> they said, all that you've said to do, we will not only do it, we'll continue to do it. We can do it. Has nothing to do with you. <laughs> we can do it. And that's what the flesh wants to do. It wants to justify itself before other men and before God. And this is naturally built into men. We see that the manifestation of conscience is a secondary proof uh, of this fact. And it testifies to an internal natural law built within the heart. And it is a governor that allows individuals to deviate from the natural law. So as you uh, have people, why can People over here kill people a little easier than people down the streets. Or maybe uh, you and I would never imagine <laughs> killing someone. But in someone else's mind, it's a possibility. It's going to be based on the way that you were raised and your consciences. Uh, do these things bother you uh, to a certain degree? Now, the accounting of the laws in the, in the individual's hearts, we see that there's an individual conception or the conception by individuals based on the written law and conscience and the result is an accounting of a perspective that affects each interaction for the individual and so as you're going in and interacting with others you're going to be playing these different things that are in your mind uh, in your interactions and this conception is not effective in satisfying the individual understanding of one's righteousness you can try to do all the things that you want to do you can try to make yourself look as good as what you want to, but you're going to be fooling yourself if you think that you're righteous in and of yourself. That mirror doesn't lie, right? We can walk around all day and, and ignore the fact of who we really are, but at some point, you've got to look in the mirror and understand who you really are. And as I say, the mirror doesn't lie. The problem with accounting law for justification. We see that the law is not a standard under grace, and we see this very plainly in Scripture. Now, why other people want to continue to preach that it is? Or they want to play with words and say, well, eh, we're not under this law, but we're under that law. Or 
these different things? I don't know. But I know that scripture plainly states that we're not under law. Don't believe me. Let's go to the scripture. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. I left my water out here. Excuse me. Thank you. <laughs> Pick it up in verse 13. He says, Neither <clears throat> yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. Really there, <laughs> that word for thee is not there again. You can underline that one in the Greek. You're not under any quality of law. There is no Mosaic law. There's no no moral law. There's no law that you're under. And I'll, I'll even point out another law, the standards that you can make for yourself. You can say, I'm not going to do this, 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 and this. And it's okay to make up things that you don't want to do. It's not okay when you take those things and say that I'm going to be righteous because I accomplish these individual things. And that's where you're putting yourself under law that you shouldn't be. In verse 15, it says, uh, or excuse me, 14, you're not under law, but under grace. Grace is the governor or ruler for our lives. The grace that's been provided to you through Jesus Christ. Verse 15, what then? Shall sin or shall we sin because we are not under the law? <laughs> he emphasizes it again, just in case you didn't hear him before. But under grace, may it never come to be. And so the argument with some people is that if we don't put ourselves under some standard, we are going to do whatever we want to do. And this is the argument that he anticipates and says here, what shall we say then? So we uh, in verse 15, because we are not under law, but under grace, uh, or shall we continue in sin because we're not under law under grace, may it never come to be. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves as servants to obey his servants you are. Whom you obey, whether uh, it be sin unto death or uh, obedience unto righteousness. So what it does in not putting yourself under law is it frees you up so that you can choose who you're going to serve. Right. If we're under if God is forcefully putting us under his thumb and under his righteousness, we don't have a choice in the matter, do we? We're robots. We're just serving him because he said so. But if we if we uh, disobey or disregard uh, this law and we're not putting ourselves under law, but under grace, we then have a choice to operate. Are we going to serve the sin nature or are we going to serve our, our position in Christ and righteousness because of that position? It goes back to the refrigerator uh, uh, reference that I've spoke of here before. You have the choice of what you're going to plug in. What are you going to plug into? Are you going to plug into your position in Christ? Or are you going to plug into who you are in the flesh? We have several other uh, uh, references that you can go to there, uh, but we continue on. The believer is uh, spiritual where the law is carnal uh, over in Romans chapter 7 and verse uh, 14. And so if you put yourself under law, what is going to be the result? You're going to be carnal. And Paul found that out uh, through that interaction. Uh, the believer, uh, the believers, the believer is uh, the believers, not uh, shouldn't be a uh, apostrophe there. Uh, Paul encountered desired for him to act under law uh, to those uh, even though he wasn't. And so in First Corinthians chapter nine and verse 20, he states that uh, the believers desiring to be under law were corrected by Paul in Galatians chapter four and verse twenty one. And then the believer is not under law uh, or the believer is not under law when led by the spirit. We see that in uh, Galatians five and verse 18. Remember over there, he says, walk by the spirit and you will never, ever, not even once possibly fulfill the lust of the flesh. But as you're 
putting these standards up for yourself, you're going to end up walking by the flesh. And it soon after tells all the works of the flesh that can occur uh, in verse 21. Now, the incapability of the law uh, to mature. Uh, Brother Don talked about this idea of maturing earlier today. And I believe it has the word uh, or the idea. It's, it's broader than just age and, and going from one stage to another. Uh, as you look at your spiritual life, it has the idea of getting to an expected end. You started off here. You're supposed to be over here. And who's going to get you there? God through the Holy Spirit. What does it say in verse one, uh, uh, Philippians chapter one and verse six? He who begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. He's going to get you from point A to point B. And so that's that uh, word for completion. A better, uh, a, a, a better, boy, I'm off in my <laughs> wording here today. Uh, a better sacrifice, I believe, was required uh, in the place of law to bring a person into proper relationship with God, as we see over in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Go with me over there really quickly. We do need to get moving here. I'm trying. I do have next week <laughs> still to go if I need to. <laughs> when I uh, write these up often in my mind, I think, man, am I going to have enough here to last the whole time? <laughs> and then I get into it and we're not even halfway through a lot of times and it's still got a lot to go. Uh, in verse 17 of, of chapter 7. He says, uh, for he testifieth, he, for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever or into the age after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a dis disannulling of the commandment going before for weakness and, unprofitable, and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. The law could not bring you from one place to another. It couldn't do that. All it did is check the box. I said, do this. You did. You did this. Good boy. <laughs> right. It did nothing to expand the spiritual state of the individual. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by which we draw nigh unto God. And so there was needed something better than the law in order to bring the, the individual into the proper spiritual state with God. Over in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, we see that Paul used irony to explain uh, that the Galatians' continuance in law for maturity was not in line with how they started. Go back with me over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3. And this is kind of the discussion all throughout the book of Galatians, this desire that these believers had in Galatia to live under law. And Paul is telling them, this is not how I taught you. What are you doing? <laughs> What's going on here? In verse one, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who would bewitch you that you should not obey the truth? Remember, the truth being that body of doctrine that tells you how to overcome your sin nature that was referenced by the Lord all the way back in John chapter eight and uh, the whole context there. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently, evidently set, has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish that having begun in the Spirit, you are now made perfect by the flesh? And he's alluding to the living under law. It's not able to make you mature in any kind of way. It's not able to get you from point A to point B. You're undoing the work that the Holy Spirit is trying to do within you when you try to do it yourself. It's like a well-oiled machine that's running and humming nice and smoothly. And you got to come in there and do your part on it. And you mess it all up. Have we ever seen that? <laughs> I've seen it. There have been things that I wanted to go in and act like I knew how to do and <laughs> mess it all up. Right. It happens. There's coaches that come in the teams and they coach already won a championship with them before, but they got to put their mark on that team. Right. They got to make their imprint be known. 
and that team loses <laughs> that very same year. Uh, and this happens. We see the preference uh, to accounting law for justification. Uh, the, the Back in Romans chapter two, the desire uh, for self-justification. We see the coordination of conscience, conscience and inner law. And we kind of discussed that before. Uh, and the component of the sin nature. And so remember, and we've been talking about this here, there is a religiosity that belongs to your sin nature Amen. and to your flesh. Amen. Why would Cain, who was not even saved, want to offer something to God? And I submit to you, there's nothing in Scripture anywhere, and it could be that God left it out, but there's nothing that said that they had to give any offering to God. They decided that they were going to offer to God and God had already set the standard for if you're going to offer for sin, there's a standard that's made. Now, Adam and Eve came out of the garden when they were found to be naked. And what did they put on themselves? They put garments of plants. And did God leave that on them? No, he gave them garments of skins. And what had to be sacrificed in order for those skins to be put on those individuals? An animal and blood. And so it's already been established that this is not good enough. And even if it weren't established by that, we could say that when God told Cain, hey, this is not good enough. There's an offering at your door if you want to offer it. He disobeyed. He said, I'll slay my brother instead. <laughs> you want to sacrifice? Here you go. And here you have the first murder performed uh, in history. And so there's a religious component to your flesh. It wants to justify itself. It wants to use its own means to stand itself up and say, I'm not so bad. <laughs> and I think it's because personal experience, we look in the mirror and understand that we're bad. And we want to do something about it. But if we want to do something about it, we need to do it the way that God said to do it and not the way that we desire to do it. Romans 520 or excuse me, Galatians 520. I caught myself. I alluded to this a minute ago. And in verse 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft. Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Witchcraft. That word for witchcraft comes from a word that has the idea of religious superstition. Now, why do people do all these incantations and chants that they do? It's in religious service to something. And why do we do the useless things that we do trying to put ourselves under individual law? It's in religious service to something. Why did Cain give fruits and vegetables rather than a blood sacrifice that was offered to God? It was in his own religious service to something. And he thought to God, God said, not good enough. The relishing of justification of the individual. Again, we see this in the example of Cain. We see it in the example of the Pharisees. If you go back into uh, uh, the context of the Gospels, these Pharisees didn't want to do the law that God had given. They came up with their own standards that they thought were above the law or their interpretations that were above the law. And what did the Lord do while he was here? He chided them many times because they were adhering to these traditions. Remember hearing that? Your tradition says to do this. And they were holding people to these standards that were above even the law that was given to them. You see also with uh, many pagans and these uh, blood sacrifices and things that they want to do in service to these false gods. They have a, a justification desire within themselves. Now, the contradiction uh, of legal justification is also seen in Scripture. And I'm going to have to decide where I want to. I don't think I'm going to make it again. <laughs> Can I cut this off or should I just ram it through and finish? I think I'm going to just finish it out. There's not a whole lot left to go. 
Uh, but we see uh, over in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 that the works of the law uh, are unable to justify the believer. Let's go there real quick because there's three uh, of the points that re relate to the same thing. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Now remember, uh, earlier in the chapter, in verse 10, he says, that as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So, <laughs> he explained in chapter 1 that the Gentiles aren't righteous. And part of chapter 2, he comes to uh, the end of chapter 2 and all the way through chapter 3 here and points out the fact that the Jews are not righteous, not even by the law. There is none righteous, no, not one. In verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, the law was never meant to make someone righteous. It was only meant to show that you have a sin nature and that you can't do it apart from God. It was to bring Israel to God. And for them to understand that they needed him to accomplish all things. Uh, in verse 24, we see the believer is justified by law. No, it says we're made righteous or declared righteous by faith. In verse 23 says for all of sin and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is where in Christ Jesus. There's no justification in your works or the things that you can do. It's by you taking your mind and directing it to who we are in Christ and those things that God has said and counted to be true. Not what we can imagine or dream up to be true from his word. Verse 28, it says the justification of the believer by faith is apart from law. And so he drives it home in verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so there's nothing with the deeds of the law that can justify you. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he the, not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we make, the, uh, do we make void the law through faith? May it never come to be. Yea, we establish the law. And so what do we understand about the Lord and what he accomplished? What did he say concerning the law? Did he come to destroy the law? Brother Scott's got it. You're on fire today, Brother Scott. <laughs> he came to fulfill the law. And so in the person of Christ, if we've been intimately identified with the work that he accomplished, why do we need to continue in law? He's fulfilled the law. And no works of the law is going to justify us. Uh, we see the counting of the individual, what, what the individual is rendering to be true in their heads is where we want to close out. We see that the individual accounts the righteousness uh, or is the accounting, excuse me, of righteousness to Abraham was by faith in God's promise. Go with me over to chapter four in verse three. And remember, this is our central uh, chapter to this word for accounting. We even have a biblical definition of the word in verse 17. In verse 1, it says, What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, is pertaining to the flesh is found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to boast uh, or, or to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So, God took Abraham and told him, look at the stars in the sky. And if you can count these numbers of stars that there in the, are in the sky, you can count your seed. And what did Abraham do? He placed faith in the fact that the one that said he was going to do this was able to perform it. And because he was able to perform it or because he believed in that, God counted that action to him for righteousness. Um, and so you see that there. Um, verse four, we see the accounting of righteousness is by grace, uh, not by works or apart from works. He says now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned or counted uh, of grace, but by uh, or, or but of debt. 
and so we we see that there. Um, and then down, I'm going to skip through here, down in verse 9, we see the accounting of righteousness is apart from works. In verse 9 it says, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say the faith, that faith was reckoned or counted to Abraham for righteousness. And so, um, I think I missed the, the actual verse that was in there. Um, oh, verse 10, sorry. Uh, how was it then reckoned? Was it, uh, was uh, when he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but uncircumcision. Now understand that circumcision ended up being a part of the prescription for the law. But when Abraham was asked to be circumcised, this was an action that God desired for him individually apart from any of that. Abraham was never under law. The law came way after Abraham uh, to those individuals that that were born from him. Uh, And so we see that here. The last thing we want to look at is the accounting of uh, Christ's identification for the believers. So where should we be reckoning or counting our minds to be? What should we be counting to be true if we're not counting the things that come from law? And over in chapter 6, and we alluded to this last week a little bit, those three words, know, reckon, and yield. Now, I'm just going to read through the context, and you kind of find these things as you're you're hearing. (laughs) You'll find these words in the context. Uh, Verse 6, and remember, the truth. And if you haven't in your Bible... I would cross-reference this uh, context of Scripture back with John chapter 8 and verse 40. Well, really, there's the whole context after verse 32. Um, but he says in that chapter, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. He wasn't talking about physical bondage. He's talking about spiritual bondage and servitude to your sin nature. And how do you overcome your sin nature? It's right here within this chapter. In verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never come to be. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him and really here (laughs) co-buried. These things are all associated together with us that are associated to Christ. We are buried together with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in a newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we henceforth should not serve sin. For he that is dead uh, is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that he shall also live with him, or we shall also live with him, knowing, again, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For if, or, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon or count, there's a word for count, also yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign over your mortal body that you should obey the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments unto unrighteousness uh, unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. No reckon yield. So we know the facts of how intimately we were tied together with the work of Christ because of what God counted to be true. We then reckon or count ourselves as dead unto the sin nature, but alive unto Christ. And because of that, we can yield our members, our body, and our things that we want to do as unto God rather than unto the flesh. No reckon yield. Uh, kind of zoomed through that last part there, but uh, the counting of the mind and thinking of those things that we count or deem to be true is essential to our Christian lives and to having victory in this Christian life over our spiritual enemies, namely the sin nature. 
if we're not counting those things that God has said to be true in his word concerning us as reality in our minds, our imaginations are going to start thinking of ways that we can do what we desire to do, to be glorifying and well-pleasing to God. And it's a tricky thing. It, it can happen very subtly where you're starting to dream up ways in your mind and dream up things that you can do. And what does it say and do? They've gone the way of Cain. <laughs> we can go the way of Cain to where we're, we're trying to tell God what righteousness is rather than living in the righteousness that's already been provided to us. May it never come to be. Father, we're grateful for this day and grateful for your grace, uh, grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the behalf of us that we might have life. Grateful for this opportunity that we have uh, to come together and to uh, celebrate the work that he accomplished for us that we've been closely identified with. We pray that as we uh, enter into this time of, of communion and fellowship, that it might be a, a sweet time uh, together. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.